The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. We've been discussing the lion crisis, from wild to captivity, hunting to sanctuary. Today, my guest is Pat Craig, founder of the Wild Animal Sanctuary outside Keensburg, Colorado, a 720-acre refuge for more than 350 rescued lions, tigers, and bears, wolves, and other large carnivores. The Wild Animal Sanctuary is the oldest and largest nonprofit sanctuary in the U.S., dedicated exclusively to rescuing captive, exotic, and endangered large carnivores. And they're on a mission to educate people about the captive animal crisis. The humble beginnings of the Wild Animal Sanctuary in 1980 came as a response to the circumstances of surplus large carnivores from behind the scenes of legal institutions, and from there grew to encompass the rescue of large carnivores. With an estimated 30,000 animals in captivity in America alone, the Wild Animal Sanctuary responds to thousands of requests from private citizens and government agencies to rescue animals that have been abused, abandoned, illegally kept, or are the victims of cruel and inhumane circumstances. As we continue to lose large carnivores in the wild, the captive crisis happening today looms larger than ever before, and it is global. It is a catch-22 of sorts. Oddly, with the increase in advocacy, we are witnessing the success of intensified awareness campaigns surrounding the conditions and welfare faced by many captive animals, and that has resulted in legislative bans prohibiting keeping large carnivores and other species in captivity, mostly in other countries. These successes find us in the precarious position of having to find or create quality sanctuary to care for these exotic animals, so-called wildlife ambassadors, whom can never be released back into the wild. Now, literally, right now, Pat and the White Wild Animal Sanctuary, through complex international collaborations, are responding to the critical need to rescue lions from Mexico, Peru, and Brazil to bring them to Colorado in what may be, to date, the largest singular rescue and airlift of lions in history. We have quite the discussion happening here today. Pat's going to tell us all about what's going on. So without any uh, further ado, I'd like to welcome my friend and colleague, Pat Craig. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on today. 
It's a pleasure. It's been a while. It's uh, a long time since we've talked, and I remember how dumbfounded I was when I first met you. What? It has to be at least a decade ago. And we talked for hours, and you told me um, and enlightened and opened my eyes of the the captive crisis and how you came to have your first lion cubs and, um, and how the wild sanctuary has come such a long way since then. Tell us a bit about this journey from... When I met you, you had 150 animals, and um, most of them were tigers and a few lions, and you had some wolves and some bears, but it's come a long way since then. As a small sanctuary, you faced a lot of problems, but now you are the premier carnivore sanctuary in the U.S. Give us a little idea of that transition and that journey. Well, thank you. It's been, uh, it continues to be quite the journey. I don't think it ever slows down or changes. It just adds more to it. So started 35 years ago by taking in surplus animals from zoos and then it eventually changed pretty quickly into rescuing animals that were being illegally kept by people as pets or people that were breeding and selling them illegally or just not good situations where it may not have been illegal but somebody was trying to keep it in an apartment, a garage or a basement or something like that. And so in the early years, um, you know, the sanctuary was a lot smaller um, and then, like you said, about 10, 15 years ago, we had moved out here to near Kenisburg, Colorado, to get more land, which is critical because there's two things that are vastly different about our sanctuary compared to pretty much any other kind of facility out there, whether it's a zoo or another sanctuary or anything, is that we give all of our animals that are rescued get rehabilitated and then get released into large acreage habitats where they can live more natural lives. So with our African lions, they, we actually have seven prides of lions that live um, in different habitats and, and live kind of like a wild pride would with a king and, and an alpha female and on down from there. And so having that ability to give the animals big spaces, it takes a lot of land. And so we're currently 720-acre facility, and we're looking to buy another 340 to 500 more acres. Um, and it's just a continually growing thing. Um, so every time we rescue new animals, we have to commit more land to them. And so it's been um, quite a journey of, of helping animals here in the United States for, for decades. And now we're seeing the problem grow more on an international basis. So even though things aren't totally solved here in the United States, they're getting better. Yet it's starting to get really bad in other countries like Mexico and, and even throughout Europe now. Well, you mentioned a couple things because I do want to get into the uh, the rescues that are going on, they're, they're very big in the news. There's been a lot going on. But you mentioned two very important things, land and uh, the, the size of the enclosures for your animals. And that, um, from what I understand, a lot of the animals that you've rescued have um, come from conditions where they've never touched grass. They've never seen sky. They've come from uh, horrendous enclosures where they're not even really... Um, friendly to people and so there's some other ways that the wild animal sanctuary is very different one you don't have your animals on display like a zoo Um, there's there's no interaction there's no cages in the sense where people walk up and can interact you have a uh, really spectacular uh, setup there and I would suggest people visiting the wild wildanimalsanctuary.org and you can see a virtual tour tour and learn all about it but you have um, a walkway there tell us a little bit about how the setup is so that people you bring in the public so and raise money which brings in funding to care for the animals and 
Um, you have a lot of dedicated volunteers and staff, but you have a very unique setup in how the public um, gets to see these animals. Tell us just a little bit about that. Okay. Yeah, we um, when we first started rescuing animals a long time ago, we knew right away that we didn't really want the public to be coming to see the facility and see the animals because all these animals are territorial just like your dogs or your horses or your chickens or just about every animal on this planet is territorial. And so in a typical zoo setting, when anim people go and they filter in in the morning, they stand outside that tiger exhibit or the lion exhibit, and in essence, that tiger and lion has all these strangers standing at the edge of their territory, and that's very unnerving to them because they don't know them. They know the keepers, but they don't know these people. So that's more or less a threat to their territory. And so when we first started rescuing animals, we weren't open to the public. And as we kept rescuing more and more animals and we realized this problem was never going to go away unless the public became educated about the, the whole issue of captive wildlife. Um, so we knew that education was now going to be a, you know, at least 50% of our mission. And so we had to switch gears, think about ways that we could reach the public and tell them that there was 25,000 lions and tigers outside the zoo system and, and tell them why and how we could solve the problem and, and things like that because without getting the public involved, this problem was only going to get, continue to get worse. So we kind of became stuck between a rock and a hard spot of needing to get the public and educate them, but at the same time not wanting to infringe on the animal's territory and, and cause that undue pressure on them. So luckily, in the first couple of years of working with animals, I realized that they didn't consider air or sky to be territory. So if I was up on a rooftop working or doing something and could even be running power tools or whatever, they could care less, but if you're 10 feet outside their fence, then they were very concerned about that because that was at ground level and that was a threat to their territory. So I realized pretty quickly that if we were ever going to be able to be open to the public, we had to elevate the people and get them off the ground and get them up in the air where they would not be a threat. So about 15 years ago, um, we hadn't been open to the public for almost, I think almost 20 years. It was about 18 or 20 years. And then once we finally realized that we just weren't making a big enough impact and you know, people needed to get out here and see the place and learn about the animals and read their stories, we created a very modest system of elevated walkways and observation decks. And it was just over about 160 acres worth of land that we did it and had the public come out and start to visit. And, and it was great because it, the, the theory worked out wonderfully. The animals could care less. They slept right through it. They didn't care. They never looked up and worried about people. So people could sit here and walk this observation system and see these animals in natural habitats and yet read the story behind, you know, like we have a male lion that was kept in a concrete pit for 15 years all by himself. He never even saw another lion from the day he was born. And yet he was rehabilitated and put into a large habitat and became worked his way up through the pride and became the king of that pride. And today he's still the king of that pride. And then we're talking, you know, 15 years later. Um, or not quite 15, but 10. He's almost 24 and a half now. And so anyway, the people read those stories, see them out there, and, and they realize these aren't just animals from the wild, and they're not just animals from zoo or surplus. They, these are animals that came from the most horrific situations that you could imagine, and now are living the most natural life you can see in captivity. And so we extended that walkway system um, probably about three or four years ago. So now it's over a mile long. And it goes over about 500 acres worth of habitats. So people visiting can come. They park their car. They go into a welcome center. They get checked in. And they get an orientation. 
And then they go up on this elevated walkway and they can walk all over the different parts of the sanctuary and look down and see all the lions and tigers and packs of wolves and, and all sorts of different animals just living naturally and not paying any attention at all to the people. So it's a wonderful system and it's pretty much the only system like that in the whole United States and probably in the whole world that we know of. As far as I'm aware, it is the mile, uh, the the mi- mile into the wild walkway. So once again, do visit uh, the wild sanctuary, wildanimalsanctuary.org, and you can take a virtual tour and see for yourself this incredible walkway system that goes over the enclosures. So you mentioned a couple things. You you you're creating prides of lions, which is in the wild is a very difficult thing to do because of all the things you mentioned, territorial issues. Um, but you're managing to be able to accomplish this in captivity. Um, how, do, how does that happen? How do you integrate these animals together from dif- different situations? You must have a quarantine process. And then how do you go about introducing them and how do they feel about their neighbors in the enclosure next door? Well, it's a, it's a good question because it is a... Um complicated process but at the same time you know we have it down to a science where it, it's very easy for us to to create prides and do this because we have our facility built for it but in the wild there's three things that that most animals compete over and have you know controversy or fight or or end up getting killed over and obviously one of those is they have to have enough food so some animals um, live together in the wild because of the food supply and some live apart but Basically, whether animals are social or not social in the wild is based on food. So tigers, leopards, mountain lions, animals like that, there's not enough food for them in their size and range that they can capture to live next to each other. They'd all end up starving. So those animals typically live solitary lives because they can't afford to be social and have too many animals in one area and overpredate. Where Af- African lions, you know, they live in the plains. They have you know, thousands and millions of head of animals, of grazing animals and prey animals, and yet most of those are too big for one lion to catch, and especially when you get into water buffalo and or cape buffaloes and things like that, um, it takes a whole pride of lions. And the other thing is that most of these animals can run as fast or faster than a lion, so it takes a pride to cause the the coordinated chaos that they do by coming in at different angles, and, and then one of the lions ends up catching something because of all the chaotic... Um, aggression that's going on where they catch them. So certain animals like wolves and lions are very social. They have hierarchies. They, they have a very complex society because if you're going to have a half a dozen or a dozen large carnivores living together, they have to be able to have some sort of order um, that works for them. And so in our situation, it's even harder because basically what happens is we, we aren't taking animals from the wild who have lived together and already know this structure and already know how this works. What we're doing is taking lions and tigers and bears and animals that were kept in captivity, and a lot of them have never even seen another lion or tiger since they were pulled as a cub and sold. So many of them don't even know they're a lion or a tiger. And so when they arrive here, it's a real culture shock. It's not only shocking to move wherever they came from, but then to show up here and look at hundreds of other lions and tigers in their mind, they're they're pretty overwhelmed. So there's no way we can just bring them here, throw them out in a 20-acre habitat, and tell them to get along. There's there's a huge process that we have to go through to make that work. Um, so you know, it's it's complex. Each animal's different, but basically, what we do is we start all the animals when they get here and, and by themselves. So they'll be singularly kept in smaller enclosures. 
so that they don't feel overwhelmed by having too much space. And basically, they're near other lions or other tigers, and that gives them an idea so they can start to see these other animals and, and observe them and, and observe the sights and sounds and smells of our sanctuary. And so over the first few weeks, it's just a matter of getting them acclimated to this new environment they're in. But eventually what we do is we start to build relationships between the lions or the tigers to where they build friendships and they are now feeling very comfortable. They're now fed very well to where they don't have to compete for food. And we end up getting these guys into larger and larger spaces so that they start in a very small space. They get used to a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. But eventually there we have a cohesive group of six or eight or ten animals, whether they're lions or tigers or wolves or whatever, that now are very comfortable living together. They've learned how to get along together. They've um, uh, a lot of learned a lot of social skills. And then at that point, they get to move out into a habitat. And so, you know, there's a lot more to it. Food is a huge part of that, and breeding is a huge part of that. We don't allow any breeding, and so um, we have to definitely address that as well. And I can talk more about that as we move on. So, really, what when when we talk about sanctuary, what I'd like our listeners to understand. It is a lot more than just walking into, let's say, a zoo or an animal theme park or a petting place and seeing animals in a cage. That when you create sanctuary, true sanctuary, where and we've talked about this on this program many times, that sanctuary is a place where animals can thrive, where they have choice to be uh, where they want to spend the day and um, to be out of sight of people. So with the mile into the wild walkway, they're not aware so much as Pat has said of what's above them. So it keeps people away from their territory edges and they get to integrate with and learn who they are, what they are, and to learn and to make neighbors and friends and become, as Pat said, a lot more natural in terms of who they are. Um, even if it's a captive situation, it is a situation where the animals are allowed to be much more what they can be in the wild. So unfortunately, we need to step away for a break. Stick with us. We have a lot more coming, and uh, we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big scary beautiful predators are in danger without them our rivers dry up our forests don't grow our communities go hungry our biodiversity crumbles wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems the wild effect it's in our hands ellie founded wild eyes foundation because she loves africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Lots of people talk about publishing their work. 
but have no idea where to start. If you are one of these aspiring authors or know somebody who is, don't miss Publishing Today Radio with Athena Dean Holtz. Thought leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and in general, storytellers all want to get their messages in print, and that includes branding and marketing. Athena and her guests are here to answer your publishing questions and more. Tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back, Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Pat Craig, with the Wild Animal Sanctuary outside of, uh, in Keensburg, Colorado. So before the break, we were talking about how Pat and his team integrate a variety of animals from hugely different situations, most of them horrendous, and how to bring these animals all together into an, a 720-acre enclosure uh, that is divided up into different habitats for these animals. And Pat was telling us some of the critical points, and uh, there's some more uh, issues that are involved in this. Tell us about that, Pat. Well, and the, the main thing is is that for hundreds of years, when people have kept animals like this, large carnivores in captivity in zoo settings and things like that, you typically go there and you'll see two lions or two tigers together. And everybody always wonders why they can't have a pride of lions or you know, four or five or six or ten tigers living together, anything like that. And the key is is that there's different components we just talked about to that whole equation. And one of the things is that you have to give these animals enough space. If you were to stick five or six lions into a typical zoo exhibit size space, they would end up being very cr- um, crowded and they'd end up wanting to start having uh, issues and get into arguments and fights and things like that. And so zoos have tried for years and years to to put in males and females and create prides and they just don't have enough space and it's not that they don't want to do it it's just that they're landlocked usually inside of a city and so they have no way to get the kind of acreage they need most of our habitats average around 20 to 25 acres so a pride of lions in 20 acres or 25 acres that's just about right to have five or six lions together or seven or eight sometimes Um, so land and space is one of the biggest equations but then food is another one Many of the facilities around the country, whether they're zoos or sanctuaries, feed their animals well. They give them a good diet. They give them adequate food every day so that they're not starving or anything. But one of the things they don't realize is that in the wild, these animals are in survival mode. 
So they are hardwired and have an instinct to think that they need to hunt and and have to look for food and protect that food and fight to keep that food on a daily basis. Otherwise, they'll starve to death. And so when we take animals and before we put them together, we actually have to feed them so much every day that they always have food left over. And so it, some animals, it can take anywhere from a few weeks to up to six months. But eventually, they get to the point where they realize there's just they're never going to starve. They Every day, there's always been more food than they could finish. And they realize that somehow in their subconscious, a switch goes off to where they think, you know, I don't need to worry about this. I don't have to compete anymore for food. So we actually have habitats where you can see six or eight tigers sitting right next to each other eating or six or eight lions or whatever, and nobody's growling, everybody's just happy, and that's because they've all reached that point where they realize there's no competition for food. There always is more food than they'll never they'll ever have. So even lions that live together in the wild that are, you know, wonderful pride members, their family, they protect each other, they hunt together, but still when the animals that they've cat, caught hit the ground, uh, many of us have seen the kind of video footage in, the, in, in real life. Some people have seen how they tear each other to pieces trying to get a chunk of that meat and take it because they know that they could end up starving when the when rain seasons end and it gets dry and there's less animals but the ones that aren't fighting and taking as much as they can get are going to die so that's an instinct that's really hard to get rid of and we focus on making sure that we you know get that to go into uh, recession or whatever you want to call to where they just don't even think of that anymore so when you give them plenty of space you take and you give them tons of food to where they realize they're never going to have to compete. The only thing left is breeding. And so different animals have different ways of looking at their reproduction. African lions are very unique in the sense that only one male gets to breed. Even though many prides will have three or four males in them, only the king gets to be the one who reproduces. And so anytime that their girls are going through their heat cycles, the males will fight. The younger males want to to breed and so they try and challenge the older male that's the king he wants to protect his right to be the only one breeding and so there's a lot of, of physical injuries and harm and, and tearing each other up over breeding rights in the wild and so that's something here in a sanctuary you, you don't want to have animals reproducing anyway because um, we have to turn down animals all the time because we don't have enough space so the last thing we want to do is have more babies and more animals taking up space and they have nowhere to go, so there's just no reason to breed. So what we do is we actually have a few choices. You can either neuter a male, or you can do a vasectomy on a male, or you can spay the female, or you can use an implant. And the problem, there's only one option there, is putting the implant in the female, because if you, let's say you did a vasectomy on a male lion, as long as that female lions are still going to go into heat, the males are still going to fight. They don't realize they're not potent anymore. So they feel like they still have to fight over who gets to breed with the females. If you neuter a male, he'll do the same thing. So you have to stop the females from cycling. And the only way to do that is either spam or put an implant in them. And if you spam, you're taking a huge risk that that's a pretty invasive surgery. And, and you could lose them through anesthesia. You could lose them through recovery and, and they're tearing out their stitches. So there's no way to you know get a, a female lion to convalesce and relax and be very calm. Most people have a hard time even with dogs to get them to recover after surgery. And so for lions, the best thing we can do and for all of our animals is is put a female uh, implant in the female that stops them from cycling. And so at that point, the males have all the food they need, they have all the space they need, they have all they don't have any girls cycling. And so at that point, you can have a pride with four or five or six males in it and only two or three females. 
and everybody gets along perfectly well. So all we do is address those natural instincts and those natural um, competition points for animals in the wild. And it works for wolves, it works for lions, it works for tigers, it works for all of them. So you've managed to reduce conflict in over food, reduce conflict over space, reduce conflict over territory, and uh, mm-hmm. create relationships between animals that may never have known each other if they were in the wild, but now need to sort of get along because of an enforced situation. And um, there's one other thing. Um, In a lot of sanctuaries, uh, one of my upcoming guests is Kevin Richardson. It's a very different situation. He's known as the Lion Whisperer, and he has a lot of interaction with his lions. And today, what you've just talked about is minimizing interaction, not having people with lions. So um, when I was with you, um, I know you are able to interact with your cats and um, other animals, but this is not a part of what you offer, and it is not a part of the daily routine, is it, interaction and being with the cats? No, you know, it's, it's part of what we do is when we rescue animals that were raised by people in their house or bottle-raised, you know, those animals are imprinted to humans, and so by the time that we get called, they've actually grown enough to where they probably bit somebody or up the house or ripped up something or it might even escape but at the same time we don't want to just go cold turkey on those guys many of them are still very adolescent in their mind they're still young animals so if we rescue a young lion or tiger and that was raised by people and it knew it and was used to physical interaction we'll interact with them for the first few weeks or a few months that they come in just to some degree so that it's not all of a sudden one day they're just thrown into a cage and nobody ever talks to them again or gives them any attention but the goal is that everybody who gets here is going to get rehabilitated and eventually learn that they're not a human they're not a dog that they're actually a lion or a tiger or a bear and that they actually like to be with other lions and tigers and bears and that they they get more joy out of being natural than they do by living the human side of the world and so people that interact with lions or tigers um, for their whole life it's not going to hurt that animal but once they've seen that animal actually being just a lion or being just a tiger and not having to kind of live in both worlds, the human world and the, and the lion world, they are much happier just being out there and living with other lions and, and doing the normal social interaction that they do. So our goal is always to eventually get them into a habitat and let them be free and let them just live a natural life that, that's motivated by all their normal instincts, and it works much better for them. And that's an important point. You just said it very well. They don't know if they're a lion or a human or a tiger or a human. So by putting them in the situation that the wild animal sanctuary offers, they get to learn who they are. They have enrichment by being with each other, and the sanctuary does supply a variety of forms of enrichments that uh, come from the donor community and come from different companies and corporations. I know you have Pumpkin Day for the bears, and there's toys, and there's swimming pools, and there's dens. So the animals, as Pat just said, really get to enjoy being who they are without that conflict of having to be and interact with a person and, let's say, control themselves or reduce those instincts to not hurt somebody. So um, we've got some more time here. Let's. I'd like to get started. You've got some really big rescues, and 
coming up, and you'd mentioned land and space is always a critical issue. So people can donate to the Wild Animal Sanctuary. Once again, go to wildanimalsanctuary.org. There are so many ways you can get involved besides visiting the animals and seeing the care and the quality of uh, not only the sanctuary itself, but the um, the lives that these animals are, are living. So back in the beginning of the program, we talked about there's a lot of bans happening in other countries, especially our neighbors to the south, South America, as um, they get on board with much more animal-friendly uh, legislation and removing performing animals from zoos and circuses and you know I use the term zoo very lightly because most of these places are not at all what we would consider a zoo in this country um, but and and private uh, private hands and seizures from either surrenders of people who are hoarders or can no longer take care or supply the needs for their animal or that uh, the government has taken because this animal is creating a problem and it comes to Pat's place. So you've got, um, there's a big deal going on right now, the Peru Lions, and that's perulions.org, and also you're collaborating and working with uh, Big Cat Rescue and Animal Defense International and Mexico Lions. So there's 30 lions from Peru and Brazil coming in, and there's, I think, another 33 or so from Mexico. So what are some of the needs, the sanctuary needs, we can sort of get into that in terms of um, caring for these lions through the rest of their lives. But let's talk about the logistics of this. This is this is huge, bringing in lions from other countries that are now facing, caught up in this limbo, this catch-22 of successful advocacy. Where do these animals go? They need space, they need money, and they need people, qualified people and places to take care of them. So tell us about this this big rescue coming up. Okay. Well, we um, one of the things that, that I learned early on was that we were just trying to help any animal that needed help. And But what we saw was 80 to 90 percent of the animals that really were being euthanized on a regular basis were large carnivores. And that's because zoos or sanctuaries or private people or whoever can always find a home for an ostrich or an emu or a, an alpaca or whatever because they're not super expensive to feed and they're not super dangerous. But nobody wants to take the lions or tigers or bears because they're just really expensive to feed and, and get very dangerous. And so that's why we focused our sanctuary uh, almost 100% on carnivores was because of that issue where there were always some other sanctuary or another place that could take a, a an ostrich or an alpaca or even a zebra or whatever. But nobody was taking the lions and tigers. And so... In 2011, we were contacted by Animal Defenders International, which is based out of the United Kingdom. And they're, they go around the world, and they're trying to get bans on circuses because they know the life for an animal in a circus, whether that's an elephant or a tiger or a lion, is a terrible life. They spend their whole life in a crate traveling now up to two years straight um, at a time, and it's just a terrible life. So what they do is they go around and advocate to try and get countries to, pay, to ban circuses from using animals. And... Um, they'd spent a lot of time in, in Latin America on campaigns down there. And in 2010, Bolivia became the first country to pass a ban against having animals in circuses. And they gave all the circuses a year to comply with that ban. And that meant you either retired the animals, you found another home for them, or many of those circuses traveled between countries down there. So it just meant you need to leave the country. So after the year was up, 
there were eight small circuses that didn't comply, and so the government had to go out and confiscate those animals, and that included monkeys and horses and dogs and lions and tigers and things like that. And um, so they were able to place all the animals in country and in either sanctuaries or facilities around the country, except for they ended up with 25 African lions that nobody would take. And so Animal Defenders International contacted us and said, we have 25 lions that need a home, otherwise they're going to be euthanized. And we agreed to take them. So that was, at that time, the largest airlift ever in history of lions being flown from um, Bolivia to Denver in a single flight that came in in, I think, February of 2011. And then we committed 80 acres into four different habitats for those 25 lions. And and they gelled into those four prides of lions that live there today. And so they're now living a free life. And these are all lions that lived in circus cages their entire life. They never got out to do anything. As you said, most zoos or circuses in these kind of countries aren't what we think of. Most circuses in, in smaller uh, third world countries are just some guy that's got a half a dozen lions or tigers or other animals and he drags them from town to town and charges people money to look at them. And so they never get out and perform. There is no big three-ring circus or a big um, tent that they go into and do anything. It's just some guy, and he's got cages that he drags around that, that are just barely make, able to make it from one down to the other. So most of these animals were born in those cages and have lived their whole life in that cage and never set foot on ground before. So, so coming to your sanctuary is, a, is a, a huge difference in their lives. I can imagine one for the better. So um, the logistics, we've, you know, let's get into the logistics when we come back from the break. We need to cut away for a minute, so stick with us. And my guest, Pat Craig, this is Our Wild World, and we'll be right back. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. 
tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back with my guest, Pat Craig. We've been talking about the um, all it takes to rescue these uh, lions and big cats from other countries as bands come into place and uh, the rescue of the, the lions that Pat was just talking about, and there's um, a big one coming up. So let's talk about the Peru lions. Why? Not so much why. I think we understand why they're coming here, um, it, it, because the Wild Animal Sanctuary is one of the few places that has the space, has the care, has the quality, and can uh, fulfill all the needs of these animals. Um, but give us some of the idea of not only the costs involved, the logistics and um, everything that it takes to put a, a rescue of this magnitude in place. And I think you also mentioned you have some more lions coming in from Spain. Yes. Um, so basically, anytime we rescue animals, um, the wild animal sanctuary usually does the entire thing. We go out, we, we round up the animals, and we bring them back. So that includes traveling all over the United States and into other countries like Mexico and um, all those. But when we worked with Animal Defenders International, they said they would take care of gathering up the animals in Bolivia and then fly them to Denver. So we spent our time preparing the facility here while they spent their time rounding up the animals, which just made the whole thing expedited versus us having to build everything, then go get the animals. And so that worked very well in that case. So when those animals came here, you know, like you said, we had to commit 80 acres of land. We Each one of those animals was going to cost upwards of $8,000 a year to take care of that. And so you're talking, you know, upwards of... a year in cost to take care of those lions. So now that we're into the Peru thing, what was so important about these us participating in these bans is that the first country to do it was very worried. Bolivia was like, well, if we make this law and nobody complies with it, then what are we going to do? Because we can't take all these animals and take care of them. And that's when Animal Defenders International said they would um, find a home for them and that they promised they would make sure it was a success. So the ban went into place. There were some circuses that didn't comply, and they were able to go get those animals rounded up and sent to our sanctuary. So it was a great success. And based on that success and how well it went, there were 35 other countries in the last four years that have passed bans on circuses because they were encouraged by that whole um, operation. That success. Yeah. And had that failed and those lions been stayed there or had to be euthanized or whatever, there'd probably be no bans or even just a very hand, small handful. So that was a major, major part of the reason we participated was to make sure that the very first ban was a success. And so now we come to Peru, and Peru was one of the later ones that finally passed a ban. 
and they kind of were in the same boat. They were really, really worried that their country happened to have quite a bit of lions and other large carnivores in their circuses. And so we, we signed on again and said, okay, you know, we don't want this one to fail because, you know, hopefully the steam that's building on all these bands is going to eventually end up with a band here in the United States or in the United Kingdom and in other really uh, prominent countries around the world. And so we told them we'd participate again with Peru. If they got the band in place and they had animals left, we would take those. And so their, their year grace period has been up, and Animal Defenders International rounded up 33 lions in the last six or eight months down there that were all part of circuses that didn't comply. And they ended up with some primates and monkeys and other things that had to be sent to a, a little jungle reserve down there. But same thing, you know, it always comes down to nobody wants to take the carnivores. And so we're taking those 33 lions, and there's actually a tiger and one bear down there as well that we're taking. And they're going to be flown up here in June. So we've committed this time 100 acres of land, and we've made 10 different habitats on that 100 acres. And that's because some of them are smaller, because a few of these lions, there's probably about a half a dozen of them that are already in their 20s, which is like somebody in human years being 75 or 80 years old. And so... There's about a half a dozen males down there that are really old. They're, they've got cataracts and all sorts of arthritis. and So we built some small habitats for the, the geriatric group that's down there. And then otherwise, the younger and middle-aged ones will all go into large habitats. But so basically, that, yeah. this, go brings, ahead. this brings up a question I, I can't help but ask. So we've got more and more bands that are going to happen, and hopefully they'll also happen here in the U.S. So we've got more and more carnivores that are going to need a place to go besides all the other animals, and probably not enough qualified sanctuaries that provide the care and um, the quality that the wild animal sanctuary provides here in the U.S. So what is is the decision-making process between rescuing these captives and spending the, the tremendous amount of time, effort, and money, and logistics involved to euthanizing them? Will there come a point that we'll have more captive animals being rescued than we have space for them, and then what will happen to them? Well, that's a good question. And one of the things that we've realized a long time ago is we we were never able to take all the animals here in the United States, so we knew there was no way we would be able to take all these other animals in all these other countries, not, not only just the circus animals, but even the ones that now they're having the same issues with private people having um, animals as pets in you know all these different countries. So... Every time we go to a country, the first thing we do besides rescuing the animals is we want to go to meet with the government and talk to them and say, look, you know, this could be a big 30-year-long battle like it's been in the United States if you don't do something or if you decide that you'd rather not do that and you pass some laws now and you commit some money to building a sanctuary in your country, you can head this off and save thousands and thousands of animals the misery and, and death that they face if you don't do anything about it. And so we've been very lucky to have a lot of these governments thank us for their for the input and realize that they don't want to go down that road and that they've actually passed um, bans in like Canada and other places that we've gone to where they realized that it was really important to listen to us and, and act now rather than wait until this got out of hand. And so not every country has been able to do that, but we've seen great success in, in South America through Uruguay and and uh, Argentina and some of these other countries that we've met with and even Panama now and in different countries. So we're really encouraged that the that all of them are taking their own ownership of this and not re- and realizing they're not going to just be able to ship everything to the United States. Well, this is this is great. So the mission that you started out with 
20, 35 years ago to educate people um, is definitely catching on. Uh, not only do you educate the people that come and visit your sanctuary, but it looks like a global education is happening with the raising of awareness, these bans being put in place. So it's, it, it's exciting and it makes headlines and people love to watch the videos of the animals being moved. There was some videos of the seizures taking place from, uh, I think it was Animal Defense International and um, all this. And it gets people hyped up to participate. But once this happens, how do you keep the momentum going? How do you keep the message and the mission going that it's not over, that these animals are going to live another 15, 20 years and um, that they, as you said, $250,000 a year per lion. How do you keep the momentum going? How do you keep people giving and keep this message alive? Well, that's the important part because obviously the rescue is expensive, just the flights and the logistics to build the crates and, and to do all that. But that pales in comparison to the lifelong cost to care for each of those animals. And so we feed over 25,000 pounds of food a week here to the, the carnivores that we have. And that's, you know, equal to about $2 million a year in food costs. And so, and these really are special diets, aren't they? It's not like you can just go pick up roadkill and toss yeah. it into the lion. They're not hunting. As you said, you keep them well-fed, so there's no territorial or food fights. So right. um, do you get companies and organizations and corporations to donate uh, food? I mean, for our listeners out there, I'm trying to find yeah. ways that people can help and, and donate, that it's not always just about dollars that there's many right. ways to help yeah there are there's there are companies and there are some big ones like walmart that donate um thousands of pounds of food to sanctuaries around the country not just ours but other ones and so they're very responsible and and have helped tremendously in the last four or five years with lots and lots of really high quality food not not old outdated food or bruised food this is all really really good human quality food that's still in date and not bruised and so they're committed helping tremendously but there's also companies that help in other ways that donate construction products that we use telephone poles um, concrete things for dens all sorts of things so in kind um, contributions like that we get about four and a half million dollars worth of in-kind contributions so that's tremendous for us because we would have had to go out and raise that much money to go out and buy those items if we didn't get them donated and that's one of the things that our sanctuary has been able to do very well is for all 35 years is be able to go out and get those in-kind donations because many companies and many people can afford to give that versus the, the dollars. Well, that's incredible. So um, we've got a few minutes left here. What would be the most important thing that you want people to get and how they can get to, to take away from today's program, whether it be education and understanding the captive crisis, because I know that's very much about what you, your organization is about. We have a captive animal crisis. So what would be that the message that you want people to take away and um, how they can help? Well, I appreciate you asking that because um, when we first started rescuing animals, I was like, well, this is never going to end. I'm never going to be able to rescue them all. So I need to find a better way to combat this where we can make a bigger difference. And that's where that education component came in, getting people to understand that there was a problem, first of all, and then what they could do to help solve that problem was the next step. And what we really have to do is people have to be more aware of the, the consequence to the animal because I think, you know, with the circuses and with all the things that we think about zoos and other things, most people are pretty aware that there's a consequence to the animals. But in the exotic animals, what we see now 
is a lot of babies being born because there's a photo op um, kind of business or industry out there where all throughout Mexico at all the resorts and in other parts of the world and even here in the United States at county fairs, there's groups that travel around and have baby lions and tigers that people can take a picture with for $20. And, of course, you're thinking, wow, this is great. I've never held a baby tiger before. I'll pay $20. I get to hold him, get my picture, and it's something I'll remember for the rest of my life. And they aren't thinking about, okay, where, where is this lion or tiger going to go and live for the next 24 years? And who's going to take care of him and all that? Because these operations, all they care about is the photo and the money. So once that tiger cub or lion cub is 12, 14 weeks old and it's too big to be held anymore, they end up selling it or dumping it anywhere they can get rid of it and getting more cubs. So most of these have to crank out a new litter of cubs about every four to six weeks to be able to keep their operation going. And so they're, they're breeding thousands of lions and tigers every year to supply their little photo op industry. And that's also a problem that you had talked to me about the very first time we met with, and I'm not going to point fingers at any particular operation, but zoos. Yeah. You know, recognized, accredited zoos bring breed. They bring in cubs because it yeah. brings in audiences and it brings in money. Yeah. So that's where you started was surplus yeah. animals from zoos. Yeah. So how do you raise awareness not only in what you were just talking about and what this program has been focusing on, but that zoos are a big part of this problem also. Yeah, and I think society is a big part of it because what it is is it boils down to that if if your neighbor called you and said, hey, I have a baby tiger, you want to come see it, everybody would say, oh, yeah, they'd drop the phone, they'd run over there, they want to see the baby tiger because how often do you get to see a baby tiger or hold it or whatever? I mean, I understand the draw, but the key is nobody's worried about that baby, whereas if your neighbor called you and said, hey, I found a baby, a human baby by the dumpster, you want to come see it, you'd be like, are you crazy? Are you going to call the hospital, the police? You know, what are you going to do? And, and so instantly people are so concerned about the welfare of that baby that they didn't even have two-second conversation before they were barking down that person's throat about what are you going to do to help save that baby and its welfare, where they didn't do that for the lion or the tiger cub until maybe hours later or days later they thought, well, I wonder what's going to happen to that lion cub. So when, when people in general start to value the life of whether it's a a horse, a cow, a dog, a lion, or a tiger, as equally as they do humans, then they won't allow things like this to happen. So, so who can people call if, let's say, somebody gets a, let's say you get a call, one of our listeners, come see my baby tiger cub. I just found one online. It's easy to find them online. Who do people call to report this? Yeah, well, in your own state, you can call always call your Division of Wildlife because it's illegal in just about every state in the country, but also... The USDA, even your local law enforcement, I mean, nobody should have a lion or tiger cub because we all know that they're going to, in six months, they're going to be tearing your house up, they're going to be biting somebody, or most of the, the sad fact is most of these animals die before we ever hear about them because people don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to feed them or take care of them, so they just try to treat them like a dog or a kitten and, and wean it at six weeks old, and so most of these animals end up getting sick and dying before anybody even really knew that person had it. And so it's a huge problem, and if you know about them, it needs to be where you, those people become social outcasts for having those animals, not not heroes or, or that it's a great attention getter. And, you know, it also brings up something that you've talked about before. You know, once these cubs are past 6, 12 weeks old, they do present a public safety issue. So um, our listeners out there, if you know of people who are keeping a big cat in their basement or their apartment or a backyard 
uh, concrete enclosure, then report it. It's illegal. They need a permit. Uh, do something. T- do your part. Stand up and speak up and speak out because this yeah. is what's creating this, this crisis that people like Pat in the Wild Animal Sanctuary end up having to clean up after and yeah. provide a life of quality and care for these animals for the rest of their lives as opposed to watching them waste away or be euthanized. So we've got about a minute left, Pat. Um, where can people contribute to the Peru Lions and the upcoming Spain Lions? Yeah, so basically you can either go to our website at wildanimalsanctuary.org and learn a lot more about the sanctuary. You can also donate online there. You can go to the Peru, just perulions.org to learn a little bit more about the Peru rescue. But either way, it costs an enormous amount of money, and we do take volunteers. You know, the sanctuary still is a primarily a volunteer organization. We have over 145 volunteers that work here. But it, it's an enormous operation, and it takes a lot of people to support it and a lot of people to volunteer to save these animals. And so, you know, for us... We're constantly looking for new people to help us and people that care about these animals and believe that they shouldn't die. And you do have a great um, application, and I believe it's online, or you can call the Wild Animal Sanctuary or email them to volunteer. But do remember that you're not going to go be hands-on with lion cubs and tiger cubs. You're going to be working, and it's this work that helps keep these animals safe and secure. So um, do visit the PeruLions.org uh, website. It's amazing. It's got a, a ton of fascinating information. Do visit uh, WildAnimalsSanctuary.org and learn all about the Wild Animal Sanctuary. You've got vis- virtual tours. There's a blog. There's a story about every animal that's come there. So, um, Pat, we're unfortunately out of time today. I can't thank you enough for you're a very busy man. Just before you, we started this call, you were in with a lion and moving cables and uh, doing cages. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Well, thank you for having me on. We appreciate it. I uh, appreciate it, too, and I hope to see you soon. So listeners out there, please donate to the wildanimalsanctuary.org. You will make a huge difference in the lives of so many carnivores that are kept in captivity that otherwise would have no choice. So that's it for today. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 